checking out Christianity, checking out the Bible, and uh, we really like that. So we hope uh, you feel welcomed um, here, and uh, this morning we're going to look at Matthew. We're going to look at Jesus um, on trial. We're going to get to that in, in just a second. So uh, I'm, I'm married, uh, in case you don't know me. My, my wife's name is Amy, and this weekend we watched uh, the new Hunger Games because it came out on Netflix. Anyone know Hunger Games? Well, anyway, a few people have watched Hunger Games. Anyway, so, so I watched it hoping to get some great sermon illustration uh, for today, and there was absolutely none, So, um, at least for our passage for this week. But uh, it got me thinking about some of my favorite movies, and one of my favorite movies is a movie called Grand Torino with uh, Clint Eastwood. Um, and I'm not, I'm not recommending it. It's, it's rated R, and there's a lot of tough stuff in there as well. But uh, one of the reasons that I really like this film especially. Uh, there's lots of good things in it. There's great character development. The characters are super interesting. Um, it's also set in Minneapolis-St. Paul, although they filmed it in, De- in Detroit. But uh, one, of the, one of the big reasons that I think it's such a great film, and people who have watched it uh, really like it, is because it shows a great example of ultimate sacrifice, a great example of someone who, who loves someone else or uh, a certain group of people so much that they are willing to give up their own life in order to save these people that they love. And so you can probably think of a list of your favorite movies or favorite books, favorite stories, and this, this theme of ultimate sacrifice, someone dying in the place of someone else, uh, is probably in a lot of those. So fill in the blank uh, for, a, for a favorite film that has this loved one dying in the place of someone they love, whether it's Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars, or Gandalf uh, falling into the pit after saving his friends, or, or Spock or Captain Kirk, depending on which, which Star Trek uh, you are, are thinking of. Or uh, Anna, which is a very, very recent, recent film that um, many, many, many people, except for me, uh, love. And so in this story, in Frozen, Anna sacrifices herself in order to save uh, her sister whom she loves very deeply. And I think that the reason that we're so drawn to these type of stories, especially if you're a Christian, is because it's our story. We resonate with that because that's our story. That Jesus loved us so deeply that he died in our place. He gave his life for us. So in in my favorite movie, or one of my favorite movies of uh, Grand Torino, Clint Eastwood, is, is this kind of figure who dies in the place of his loved ones. Although a very, very imperfect uh, savior, as it were, and also not innocent at all. But today we're going to look in Matthew, and we're going to see uh, Jesus. So Matthew is one of Jesus' disciples, and he writes about Jesus' life. And now he's, today we're going to see him write about Jesus' trial. And he's going to show another example of this, of, of this greatest act of love, this great sacrifice where someone dies in the place of someone else. And unlike Clint Eastwood's character, Jesus is truly innocent. The innocent dying in the place of the guilty. So today we're going to look at Matthew 26, and we're going to see Jesus on trial. So we're, I'm entitling this uh, part one of Jesus on trial. Uh, his first trial, he's going to be tried in front of the Jewish uh, religious leaders, and then in a couple weeks, we're going to see part two, where the trial gets moved to, um, uh, or the second part of the trial is, is a Roman trial, where actually um, does get sentenced 
uh, to death on the cross. But today we're going to look at part one where he's in front of these Jewish religious uh, leaders. So kind of to set the stage uh, so we know how he got here. The past few weeks we've looked at Jesus' uh, life. So he's, he's come into Jerusalem and he's gotten really big fights with the religious uh, rulers on a number of things. He's teaching at the temple and and uh, just a few hours before today's passage, Jesus was in the garden at night, and he's praying to God the Father. He's praying that if there's any way, any possible way, that he can fulfill his mission, that he can save humanity and not have to go through the cross, that uh, that, that would happen. And he begs his Father three times that if it's possible for that to happen, let it pass. But it wasn't possible. And so... Jesus prays with each one of those prays, not my will, but yours be done, Father. I, I don't want to go through this. I'm, I'm heartbroken. I'm, I'm so stressed. I'm sweating blood, but I'll do it. I'll do it if this is the only way. And so from that scene, uh, Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, comes, betrays Jesus with a kiss, and a crowd of people armed with uh, swords and clubs comes and tries to arrest Jesus. And, and Peter, one of one of Jesus' disciples, we see him in our passage today, he comes up again, actually takes a sword and tries to defend Jesus, cuts off the ear of someone who's trying to arrest Jesus, and, and Jesus stops him and he says, stop, stop. Don't you think that if I really wanted, if I really didn't want to get arrested, I could call down thousands upon thousands of angels and just wipe this, this crowd away that's trying to arrest me and save my own self. And from there... Jesus' disciples, they desert him. They scatter and they leave. And Jesus is arrested. And then in today's passage, we see Jesus brought to uh, the home of the high priest where he is on trial. And we see Peter kind of following along the, the one disciple that doesn't completely desert him. Although right after this passage, he ends up denying him. So Jesus is all alone in, in our passage this morning on trial. Uh, we're reading from chapter 26, starting in uh, verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus, this crowd armed with, with clubs and, and swords, led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And so we see Jesus all by himself, all alone. Peter's kind of in the distance, in the background, but Jesus all alone, and commentators make a really big deal about this trial, actually lots and lots of aspects of it being illegal, according, according to their Jewish law. So it's, it's under the cover of night, where not many people are going to see what's going on. And, and lots, of, lots of illegal things are, are going along, are, are happening that we're not going to uh, look at. But one of them, it being at night, another one we're going to see, multiple people trying to uh, give false witness, lying about it, and they, and they actually can't come up with a story in order to trap Jesus. So, so that's, that's where we're at right now. And just like we saw in the garden when Jesus is arrested, we're going to see this again today, but we see it right now uh, at the beginning part of this passage, Jesus isn't fighting back. Jesus isn't demanding his rights. Jesus isn't saying, you need to stop, I'm innocent but instead, he quietly uh, goes along into this trial. And we're going to see some more uh, interesting, crazy stuff, the way that he responds to this illegal trial, to this great injustice. Because, 
like he said in the past few passages, he knows his mission. He knows why God the Father has sent him into the world, and he is steadfast in that mission because of his great love for us. Verse 59, Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So we see here both the, the religious ruler, their, their motivation for what they're trying to do. They want to trap Jesus. The Verse 59 says, so that they might put him to death. So they're not just trying to get a guy who's broken the law to, to give him justice and, and put him in jail or to fine him. They're trying to find false witness, people who are willing to lie under oath in order to trap Jesus so that they might put him to death. And this accusation that gets brought uh, to, to this trial, if this is true, if Jesus really did say these type of things, it is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. So the temple is the center of religious life for the Jews or, or any religion uh, in, in the first century. And so to desecrate or to disrespect or especially to destroy a temple of a god is essentially to disrespect that god himself in the ancient world. So if Jesus really did say, I'm going to come in and destroy uh, God's temple, he really is disrespecting and dishonoring of God. So that's why it's such a big deal for the Jews here. It's an incredibly serious uh, law that's being broken. And if Jesus is convicted, the, the Old Testament says that he um, could face and, and will face the death penalty. But let's look at what Jesus really did say. And another one of uh, Jesus' disciples' accounts of this in, in the book of John, we see what actually happened, what Jesus really did say. So right before this passage, this is where Jesus goes into the temple, the actual temple, and drives out all the money changers. And they ask him, under what authority do you have to come into our temple and, and turn over these tables and, and, and uh, kick out all the money changers? And this is how Jesus responds to that. He answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Matthew also understands what's going on here. And so he describes what the religious rulers are doing. He describes that as seeking false testimony because he knows he knew what Jesus really did say. And he knows that they're doing this in order that they could kill him. They were so bent on killing Jesus that they went out and find people who would lie on trial and testify against Jesus. They brought forth many witnesses, but none could agree, which is really cool. We're just showing and proving that Jesus really was, really was innocent. And it wasn't just these religious rulers that knew Jesus was innocent. Next week, uh, in, in, in the passage that Chris is going to preach on, don't tell him, he's not in the room right now, I don't think, but uh, I'm going to steal some stuff from his passage. Next week, 
we're going to see that not only the religious rulers, but also Judas both admit that Jesus was innocent, that they tried and betrayed and convicted an innocent man. Matthew 27, we read, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. So they don't deny what Judas is saying. They agree that Jesus was innocent. And they say, what is that to us? It's already been done. You've got your money. See to it yourself. And Chris will unpack that even more next week. Right now, I want this, this situation that we see Jesus in to, to, to land for us. I want you to think about personally sometime in your life, like Jesus here, you've either been betrayed by someone or maybe someone has been gossiping or slandering or lying about you and there's, there's people that, that hate you, people that are mad at you, people that are really hurt because of something false that was said about you. Think about how that makes you feel. Think of a time where maybe you couldn't sleep because all you wanted was to just go reconcile with this person or, or tell them what really happened, the truth of what really happened. And that's what's going on here with Jesus. Think about how you, if you were in that situation, how you would want to defend yourself. How you would want to say, no, I didn't say that about you. Don't be mad at me. Don't hate me. I would never say that, again. I would never say that about you or against you. Think about how an innocent person wants to speak up for themselves. How they want to defend themselves. How they want the truth to come out. And yet Jesus just took it. Just took these accusations, these lies against him. Years later, Peter, this, this same disciple that deserted Jesus but is kind of following along and is, is far off and is seeing a little bit what's going on in this trial, Peter, he, looks, or he writes years later and is looking back at this trial and Jesus' death, his execution, and he looks and understands at, at what's going on and then the spiritual ramifications of, of what's really happening here. He looks back on Jesus' trial, and what he sees is the innocent being killed in the place of the guilty, in the place of us, humanity that has rebelled against God and is in, uh, who are guilty, whereas Jesus is truly innocent. He sees Christ substituting in our place. He writes in uh, 1 Peter 3, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. That he might bring the unrighteous back to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in spirit. So again, notice, notice how Jesus responds to these lies against him. What does he do? Or a better question might be, what doesn't he do? Think about how we would respond or have responded in the past, how does, Jesus, how does Jesus respond? What doesn't he do? Does he defend himself? Does he fight back? Does he call down these angels? Does he even speak up? Think about how crazy that is, his response, that he's just silent. He's being tried in an illegal trial where people are lying about him 
trying to give him the death penalty. And not only is this trial illegal, and he's being unjustly tried, he is completely and utterly innocent of any wrongdoing. If there was ever someone in the history of the world that had the right to defend themselves, it was Jesus here. But he doesn't do anything. But why? Why, why is Jesus just sitting there? Why isn't he defending himself? Why isn't he fighting back? It's because he knows his mission. He knows the Father's plan for him, why Jesus was sent into this world. Jesus has been prophesying about what his mission was and what he came to do. He's been predicting even to the smallest detail about what would happen to him, about his betrayal and his death. Jesus knows that he must die on the Passover, which is the, the next day, that he must be handed over to the Gentiles, that he must die on a cross in the place of the humanity that he loves. And so he willingly chooses to shut his mouth and await his conviction. Back to Matthew 26. And the high priest stood up. He's getting sick of Jesus not saying anything. Have you no answer to make? What is that that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And again, Jesus is silent. Hundreds of years ago, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah and how he would respond under trial, under persecution. Isaiah 53 writes about the coming Christ, the Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus knew his mission. He knew that the prophets had prophesied about his mission, what he would have to do, and he is now fulfilling it. Jesus could have, he could have said, he could have defended himself, he could have said, really guys, look at this temple over here, this enormous building, and you really think, you really think that me, with just 12 little disciples, can tear down this building that took 46 years to construct how ridiculous is that claim against me? He could have said something like that, but he chose to remain silent. As Jesus and his disciples had entered Jerusalem just a few days prior, he once again reminded his disciples of what his mission was, what he came to Jerusalem and ultimately to the world to do. And he describes it. He predicts it in incredible detail. We read this just a few, few months ago in Matthew 20. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going to, up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. Look at all these, all these small details even that Jesus is predicting will come in just a few days. He talks about having to go to Jerusalem, and that's where he'll be betrayed and tried and convicted, that he'll be handed over to the chief priests 
and to the scribes that they will condemn him to death and that then he will then be delivered over to the Gentiles that he will be mocked and that he will ultimately die by crucifixion. In, in the book of Mark, another one of the Gospels, it even adds that Jesus will be spat upon in his prediction. And we're going to see all this stuff come to play uh, later on in today's passage and then in the next few weeks. So Matthew is going into incredible detail so that we as the readers know that without a doubt, Jesus is in control. He's in control of his death. He knows his mission. And he wants to fulfill it. Again, this is not God the Father sending Jesus to do something that he wasn't willing to do. But again and again, we are seeing Jesus even sharing his feelings with God the Father. I don't want to go through this horrible betrayal and torture and loneliness and death, but I'm willing to do it. And we see all throughout his trial him choosing to go through it. Jesus finally responds after the high priest adjures him by the living God and seals his fate. Verse 63 again, The high priest said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So a real quick uh, definition of some of these terms, just because uh, the way that they're being used here in Matthew might seem a little different than the way that we use them. So when the high priest is asking Jesus, under oath, he's saying, so, so are you, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Those words Christ and Son of God are synonymous. Or this word Messiah, the Jewish word Messiah, this, this coming king, this coming rescuer. So all three of those words, Christ, Messiah, and Son of God, are, are, are essentially synonymous. So even though now, uh, when we talk about this, Jesus being the Son of God, often what we mean is we're talking about the Trinity, and there's three persons within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But here, when, when they use the phrase, the Son of God, it's actually a, a title that refers to the, the Christ, the Messiah. And then what Jesus says, he uses this phrase, son of man, whereas we might think that just means he's human. But this, this phrase, son of man, is uh, talked about in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a phrase that brings with it uh, a divinity. It, it shares that this, this person, this son of man, is someone who has the same attributes as God. And we're going to look at that in just a second, but, but to help us understand uh, these phrases. So Jesus responds to this question. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? With an affirmation. He says, yes. Yes, I am. But let me define this to you. Let me, let me tell you what I really am saying when I say that I am the Christ. I'm also the Son of Man. I'm also divine. I'm also God in flesh. In his answer, Jesus describes who the Messiah, who the Son of God really is. He does this by using some imagery, some texts from the Old Testament, ones that uh, come from the prophet Daniel and from the book of Psalms, written hundreds of years before Christ. We're going to unpack those real quick. So Daniel 7, that describes the Son of Man. We're going to read, uh, starting in verse uh, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, 
with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, another name for God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, to this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, the Son of Man's dominion, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Author and pastor Tim Keller, in his book, King's, the, King's, excuse me, the King's Cross, he writes about what Jesus is actually doing and what he's saying here. That what uh, the listeners, what these religious rulers, what they would hear and understand when Jesus responds the way he does. When he calls himself the Son of Man, they would have heard divine. They would have heard like God. He writes, everybody in the room, all of the ruling council of the Sanhedrin knows who the Son of Man is. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes from the throne of God to earth in the clouds of heaven to judge the world. Divine language there, to judge the world. Therefore, by replying as he does, Jesus is saying, I will come to earth in the very glory of God and judge the entire world. It is an astonishing statement. It is a claim to deity. The second Old Testament passage that Jesus uses in his defense when he says who he is comes from Psalms, uh, Psalm 110, verses 1 through 2. So when he says, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, the religious rulers would hear what's going on in, in Psalm 110. It says, the Lord... So whenever you see the Lord cap, in all uh, capital letters there, it means God the Father or Yahweh. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, God the Father, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So again, Keller writes about this. He notes the paradox of what Jesus is saying here about the statement of the situation that he's in. The God who will one day come and judge the entire world, is being judged by the world. Keller writes, Of all the things that Jesus could have said in response, and there are so many texts, so many themes and images, metaphors and passages of the Hebrew Scriptures that he could have used to tell about who he was. But he specifically says that he's the judge. By his choice of text. Jesus is deliberately forcing us to see the paradox. There's been an enormous reversal here. He is the judge over the entire world, being judged by the world. He should be in the judgment seat, and we should be in the dock. We should be on trial, in chains. Everything is turned upside down. Some of you have been lied to and told that Jesus, he, he never really claimed to be God. Jesus was just a good teacher. He never thought that he was God. He never said that he was God. And that either his disciples made it up after he had died, or maybe the early church made it up into, in, uh, in order to give itself more power. But that's just not true. Jesus not only demonstrated he is God, and we've seen that all throughout Matthew over the past two years, but he also said he was God. 
And he said it in a bunch of different ways so that people could make no mistake with what he was saying. And that's why they killed him. They killed him for that. One of the most important questions you can ever answer is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Artie and Matthew have seen lots of stuff about Jesus, about what he said, who he said he was, and through his demonstration about the backing up all those claims about being God. We're going to briefly and quickly go through the many different places just in Matthew that we've seen Jesus claim and show that he's God. The first one, the virgin birth at the beginning of Matthew. At uh, his birth, he's given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Later on, God the Father calls Jesus his son at Jesus' baptism. Jesus cast out demons and they recognize him, calling him the son of God. So we see angels, God the Father, and demons all recognizing who Jesus was. While Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, he calls Jesus the son of God. And Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus heals the sick, the blind, the paralyzed. He casts out demons. And he even raises the dead. And alongside all of that, he forgives people of their sins. Both things, things that God does, things that come from God. We've also seen in, in Matthew, we've seen nature obey him. And afterwards, the disciples worship him in response to seeing that, calling him the Son of God. Peter, the same disciple that we see uh, desert Jesus, just a few chapters earlier, he calls Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds to Peter by saying, that's true, and that the Father has revealed this truth to him. And like we saw today, Jesus claims to be the coming judge of the entire world, which again is, is divine language and a, a godly characteristic. Also in the New Testament, we'll look very briefly in John, another one of the disciples who writes about Jesus' life. In John, in numerous places, Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father. He claims to have had always existed in John 1 and John 8. And like I said before, Jesus was put to death because he claimed to be God. In John 10, we read, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And finally, history and tradition uh, tell us that Jesus' disciples believed that he was God. And nearly all of them were killed for that. So Jesus did claim to be God. He said it. He said it in many different ways. And through his actions, he proved it. Famous author C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, gives a great argument that... Uh, is, is quite famous, that says that one must consider the facts, including and especially what Jesus said about himself when deciding on who Jesus really was, when answering this question, who is Jesus? C.S. Lewis, he argues that one cannot say that Jesus was just a great teacher or a guru 
or just this uh, mystical man worth following, unless Jesus really was who he said he was. He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the same level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was, as he, it, sorry, either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely as it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. You have to decide. Your parents can't make this decision for you. Your spouse, your friends. You have to decide, is Jesus who he said he was? And if he isn't, then you can't just say that he's a great moral teacher. He doesn't let you have that option. He's either someone lying about who he said he is, and so if he's lying to everyone, then he can't be a good moral teacher if, he, if his whole ministry is based on lying deceit. Or he's a crazy man that says, Worship me. I am God. I created this universe. I've been around for forever. But Jesus doesn't let you think that he's just a good guy, just a teacher, just this mystical guru. In our passage today, it contrasts two different responses to Jesus. We see how the religious rulers respond to Jesus. And we see how Peter responds to Jesus, especially as we look at uh, after the story. Peter's going to write about what happened we're going to end with that. But first, how did the religious rulers respond to Jesus? They thought he was a liar. They thought he was a lunatic. They thought he was a crazy person that's been lying. And their response comes in verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes, showing this great disdain for what Jesus had said, this great sadness. And he said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? He says to the crowd. And they answer him, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face, and they struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is it that struck you? Which is pretty crazy, because he just prophesied earlier, that that's what they do to him. So what is your response today? 
to Jesus' claim to being God. We all have to answer this question. Who is Jesus? After hearing him say and demonstrate that he is God, we can't just go back to naivety when we maybe didn't know, when maybe we just thought he's probably just a good teacher. We now have to make a choice. He demands that we make a choice. He doesn't let us just follow him, just following him as someone who's got some nice sayings or some good ways to live. So you have to answer the question, who is Jesus? You have to trust someone. Are you going to trust Jesus and what he says about himself? Or are you going to trust what other people have said about Jesus? Something you've read, maybe someone that's told you something about Jesus. You have to trust either him or what people say about him. And what do we see today? What do we see of his character, of who this man is? The only truly innocent man in history willingly was wrongly convicted and sentenced to death because he loved you. You. He chose. He chose to be unjustly convicted and put to death in your place because he loved you. Is that man worthy of your trust? So the second response to Jesus, we've seen how the religious rulers responded to him. Peter, the same, the same disciple that followed Jesus, and we're going to, the next passage, he actually denies Jesus. But we see later on, after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he actually restores Peter, forgives Peter, and Peter becomes one of the, the leaders of the church early on. Let's see how Peter responds to Jesus. This can be great encouragement to you. Because like I said, this guy, even after uh, deserting Jesus, even after denying Jesus, Jesus forgives him and restores him and, allow, and allows him to again respond to Jesus and make a choice of who, who is Jesus to Peter. So let's see what Peter writes. So he's looking back again at what happened at the trial and on the cross. Peter writes, for to you, he's speaking to, to the church, to Christians. For to you, uh, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So if you believe Jesus, you believe he is who he said he is, that he is God, that he did die in your place for your sins, Trust him. Make him the God of your life, the Lord of your life, your master, your Messiah. And like we saw in 1 Peter, his, his, his response, he says, because Jesus has done this for you, he left you an example so we can follow in Jesus' footsteps that we might die to sin and I'll live for righteousness. So if that's you today, let your good works come out of now this new life that you have been given, and respond 
to this great God who sacrificed himself, the innocent for the guilty, in our place. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your great plan that you sent your son, that you did not leave us alone, and that your son was willing to die in our place, that he didn't speak up, he didn't demand justice, he didn't fight back, but he stayed silent because he knew he had to die on the cross, because he knew that that was the only way to save us. He loved us so much that he went through that. We pray that this truth, this story, this reality would grip us, that it would change our hearts. We pray for anyone in this room who for either the first time or maybe uh, they've just forgotten it, that they would see you for who you are, who you called yourself, how you demonstrated and proved that you were who you said you were, that, that they would make a decision today to trust you trust that you are God, come to save them who died on their behalf. I pray this in your powerful, saving name, Jesus. Amen.